Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker, teacher, and data editor at Google. And my name is Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, an infographics designer and journalist, and a book author. We love using data to tell stories, and the music you can hear is the sound of data, made with two-tone, an app that turns numbers into tunes. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, that dissects the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism, and we will chat with some of the world's top data journalists. You'll get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe at datajournalismpodcast.com to see how data is changing the world of journalism forever. Hi, Simon. Hey, Alberto. So uh, who do we have today here? We have somebody that I've actually known for a little while, um, David McCandless, who's probably, if you said to most people out there in the world, you, you asked a question about data visualization or data journalism, he's actually probably one of the best known people out there. And that's partly because of his books, which have been incredibly successful. And he's also managed to turn that kind of interest in data and producing visualizations for himself, which is something, into a, into a career. Yeah, he, his book are, 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 his three books are bestsellers, right? It's like information is beautiful and the knowledge is beautiful. They have sold thousands and thousands and thousands yeah. of copies all over the world. And now he has a new book. It just came out, right? A beautiful news. Yeah, it's. I think it's a compilation, isn't it? Some of the work that he's been doing more recently, yeah. and um, it's important to update these books. Yeah, our conversation, our conversation with David, I think that it was quite interesting, in my opinion. We pushed mm-hmm. him a little bit. We pushed back a little bit on some of his opinions. We have interesting discussions about uh, how data should be presented, levels of detail when you present data. I think that it was a very interesting conversation. I think so too. There's a David produces strong reactions. I think people often, you know, who maybe aren't, you know, data viz experts love his work. And then and then there's designers who really push back on this, as as David calls them, the chart police. So I think <laughs> I think I think it's a good conversation around this stuff and we get so hopefully some of those issues. Yeah, it was great. Let's let's go for it. Let's dive in. Hello, my name is David McCandless. I'm the founder of Information is Beautiful. I live and work in London as a data journalist and information designer, which is, I think, just a fancy way of saying that I love data and information, all kinds of data and information, numbers, ideas, words, statistics, turning that data and information into graphical images, visualizations, that anyone can understand. I'm also the author of a couple, oh, I'm going to say a couple of books, actually three books now. Uh, Information is Beautiful, published in 2009, published as the Visual Miscellaneum uh, in the North America. Then a follow-up was called Knowledge is Beautiful in 2014. And then just recently, Beautiful News. You see, beauty is a bit of an obsession of mine, and maybe we can go into that. Uh, but these books are just really expressions or uh, containers, if you like, for my passion for this medium of data visualization and infographicism, such a word exists. I just feel it's just an amazingly versatile um, art, art form or craft or medium. And you can really just explore, tell stories, help people make sense of the world, help myself make sense of the world. 
allow us to focus on what's important in the world. It's just a really incredibly uh, helpful, beautiful, and very modern way of communicating. So David, um, obviously you and I have worked together a few times over the years and we've known each other. Indeed. But sometime, um, talk a little bit about how you got into this field and what was your kind of eureka moment for discovering data viz and data journalism? Yeah, thanks, Simon. Yeah, we uh, we met at The Guardian, I think, uh, mm. some years ago. Uh, by that time, I was already making graphics, but I was prior to making graphics, I was a journalist. So I was a freelance journalist working for The Guardian, other newspapers. I worked for Wired magazine as well. And I was a generalist. So I had some specialities. Most of them just interested in everything and trying to pitch ideas and, and make make my uh, living as a journalist. And constantly having to keep up with lots of uh, ideas and, and uh, stories and topics. And I was researching a topic a uh, complex topic for a story that I was trying to pitch. And uh, I was struggling to keep track of all the elements of it. And so I ended up like drawing a little sketch of all the different viewpoints and angles and so on. And I do remember like looking at this sketch and thinking, oh, this kind of conveys my understanding of this topic. Uh, maybe I don't have to write the article. Maybe I could just actually just draw a diagram of this could that is that am i allowed to do that is that a thing and that's when i was uh, sort of well woke if you like to that possibility and i started looking at uh, i've discovered infographics i looked at um, everything that was going on the guardian was doing a lot of work and i was like wow yeah you can do this and and more interestingly you know at that time infographics and visuals were often confined to like a small box out or a little element or a side element and I wondered if I, you could make the actual main thing, the graphic, it could be the front page, it could be the whole double page spread. It could say it all essentially, and you could have a very little text. So that was the impetus. And I started playing around with it, trying some data sets out, trying some ideas. And the sort of selling point for me was I was able to tell, I did a few graphics and I was able to put some little jokes in, like ironic juxtapositions or little sort of touches here and there. And that was the kind of, that sold it to me. I was like, yes, I can work with this medium. You can be humorous with it as well as you know informational and journalistic then i think it's got true merit so i dove in you mentioned kind of like feeling that maybe this is something you weren't allowed to do uh, you know what was the reaction when you started just like publishing this stuff for yourself and got out into the world um well it was a mixed reaction i would say uh uh so there was a lot of people had strong opinions. I wasn't sort of trained in data viz. Uh, I wasn't trained in design. Uh, I was just sort of experimenting and sharing pieces of work. So I got a lot of um, attention, let's say, from uh, what you could call the chart police or the, the, the protectors of the canonical approaches. And uh, they were pointing out quite helpfully sometimes uh, the mistakes I was making or the um, occlusions I was perhaps perhaps dropping into my work uh yeah it was helpful and there's a lot of it was quite angry um but you know what if you scrape off the anger you know often that feedback feedback is kind of useful uh but it also it was it seemed quite popular like my work seemed to be um popular people liked it so there was a kind of like division I guess between a, a, a pop a, an audience that liked it and people that hated it essentially I mean I do feel like you, you, I've I've seen marmite level reactions, um, 
to to your work so you see you know like people seem to love it and i you know i think there's a lot of work that I, I really love and i've seen i've seen people i say people designers often get really kind of cross about it why do you think you provoke kind of strong reactions in that way is that a sign of success or i think that's one of the classic signs isn't it you're successful when you have critics <laughs> i think people go out their way to attack your work it means they care and they're passionate and they're investing time and energy in it so it's touched them in some way uh yeah i mean uh, like i said I, i'm not um trained uh, designer or, or database person so I was learning on the job as it were. So I did make some sort of howlers and I, I wasn't always following the rules. And I think sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. So I think that's probably why that where the audience is sort of split, basically. Uh, you, and I also you... I applied it to topics. Sorry. And also applied as I didn't always use, I wasn't always, I was applying it to all kinds of topics. So lighthearted as well as uh, newsy as well as data driven as well as sciencey because I come from like a features and news background journalistically so I'm just interested in lots of different topics so I was just sort of fire hosing with all everything I was interested in. Do you think the I, world of the well oh, sorry Albert let me just this really quickly so do you think the world of design is more predisposed to be kind of angrily negative than other areas of, uh, of work? Um, I think design, a bit like the data world and the charting world, these are all quite rule-bound, rightly so, rule-bound, systemized, um, almost architectural type practices. And, and there is a strong emphasis on alignment and correctness and form and structure, which is, again, I would say legit. But also, but when you start to humanize things, you bring in color, you start playing, you start trying to make things more engaging and, and open or exploratory or appealing, then there's a, there's a sort of fuzzing of that, those rules, I think. Um, and, you know, that can be upsetting for some people, I guess, when you don't necessarily, you're not following the rules, you're, you're not labeling your axes or you're using a non-diverging color palette. It's just, you know, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I was just playing with the medium, basically. I can I can jump in in the conversation because, as you know, I've been involved in conversations like that for many many years, and I can tell you that my own thinking about all these issues has evolved quite a lot to take a, I would say, an extremely pragmatic approach to visualization design and. A saying essentially that all the rules that not all of them, but most of the rules, quotation mark around the world, um, that that we learn in books or in, in, in teachings, etc., have very shaky foundations. They are actually not grounded usually in anything that is sort of like empirically um has been empirically evaluated. There are certain things that have, right? It's like certain color palettes work better than others, depending on how well you can see, right? You need, you should, we should use to try to use bigger fonts so people who have, you know, are short-sighted can read that, uh, can read the font, right? So those are rules that I would follow. But then many other rules that, that exist in the, in the visualization design world, again, have very shaky foundations. And for, to me, the sort of like the ultimate, the ultimate measure of value of a visualization is whether people understand what the visualization is trying to convey. Right, it's like whether the visualization follows rules, professional rules or not, is secondary to the fact that people can actually understand it. 
So the response that your graphics have gone, had gotten throughout the years, uh, whether it is because people like them or, or, or because people get something out of them, I think that it's a very positive sign that they do work. They do work with people. And so I think that that is great. Now, I have obviously find things to criticize in, in your work, like in anybody's, anybody's work, including my own work. But what I would say is that, you know, you should never feel bad about receiving criticism from, from the world because from the world of visualization, because sometimes people in visualization feel extremely strongly about issues that should, they should not be, feel as strongly as they feel a, a, about sometimes. Yeah, that's helpful. That's a helpful clarification. Thank you. Yeah. And well, related to that, I think that what we could do next is to talk a little bit about, and then we can return to, to, to the graphics and discussions about certain certain things, but maybe you could talk a little bit about your current practice, right? So you do have a company right now, you're right, you work as an independent designer, right? Uh, yes, you could say. I mean, I'm sort of more in the author seat now, I'm just making work for myself and releasing it. But yeah, I've, I've, I ran a studio, I had a commercial arm, mm -hmm. I do a bit of training, I've actually even developed a tool um, I've, internally that I'm going to release. So yeah, I'm still very much making work, I would say, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about about your team? Yeah, so uh, I don't. Well, I'm actually sort of scaled back at the moment. I'm 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 enjoying a period. Of, I'm sort of pre what I'm calling a pre sabbatical. I'm taxiing for sabbatical. Uh, so I'm streamlined down. So it's just me and a, and a developer and my assistant. But it sort of an ideal team for me or team when it scales up to meet projects is I have a designer uh a researcher phd sort of data person someone cleverer than me basically uh and usually a front-end developer and a fact checker so about four five six i'm a sort of i like bands basically i was in bands when i was younger so less orchestras more bands how do you um how do you choose what you want to do i mean one of the things i think you've been really smart about and I, I see is, is choosing things that kind of topics that resonate with people. And I think that's partly why you've had such a positive reaction from people out there in the world. But how do you choose those those stories and what is it that you when you feel this this is going to be a good topic for us? Yeah, I uh, sometimes it's just my I so my i'm passionately interested in certain topics and really curious and i follow a lot of topics so i'm often inspired and stirred to create images particularly around topical issues or stuff that i'm reading or care about but also i like to use i find it quite useful to tune into my ignorance or feelings of frustration or feelings of bewilderment when i'm reading the news or books or having something explained to me that when i feel like I don't understand something, that to me is often a creative trigger to create something that explains it. Like I feel like there's a gap there, and I can, I, if I don't, you know, I can create something that I that I can understand. Basically, I'm selfishly trying to understand things, so I will create something that I understand, get all the data, and really sort of dive into the topic, and then re-explain it. And that's, in a way, that feels like sort of journal, pure journalism in a sense of like, you know, gathering the research, getting informed and then re-explaining it and sharing your understanding with others. So, yeah, ignorance, um, 
frustration and bewilderment. These are probably my <laughs> most inspiring feelings in a way. I think that personal thing is really interesting to me because that's how I've, I'd like to work in the past because there are some things that are just interesting to you. If they're interesting to you, they're going to be interesting to somebody else as well. Yeah, and you can also make anything interesting, I think. If you add enough context, you d dig in deep enough, you get the right angle, you reveal something hidden or some uh, um, concealed or unseen connections, you plug it into something wider, you can actually enliven something that might be dry or technical or boring or re repeatedly explained, but you can actually bring it alive. So I have that sort of disposition as well. And according to your new book, you are interested in beautiful news. That's the title of the of the new book, right? Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, beautiful news uh, came out of a daily project we did. It was a sort of, um, <clears throat> it was inspired by uh, Factfulness, the Hans Rosling book. That just taking a, a new perspective on on the world. The world isn't as bad as it seems through the lens of the news. And I was really inspired by that. And I wanted to just extend that idea really from a data and visualization perspective. So we set about creating, uh, releasing a chart every day, surfacing and positive, progressive and beautiful things that are happening around the world that we can't see when we're fixated on the negativity of the news. So we did that for uh, every day for a year, creating these kind of like little kind of beautifully designed and hopefully conceptually beautiful with backed up with beautiful rigorous data so they little, little capsules little pills you could take or see every day to sort of brighten your view or give you a new perspective and uh, yeah so at the end of that it felt natural to um, aggregate them in a book extend them add some extra stuff and primers and other infographics just to make something that, that conveyed this perspective around uh that you know there's a sort of there is a cosmos there is a positivity a, a cosmos of positivity there is another way of seeing the world that isn't just it's not just happy clappy everything's brilliant the world is not that it's not perfect but it's nor is it as bad as it looks essentially so just surfacing that stuff to bring a more balanced information diet it's interesting to me you mentioned Hans Rosling. Is he somebody you're influenced by or whose work you can think about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I remember seeing his TED talk, the first one he did. I've just been blown away. But just the unity of, of designing something visual and then uh, the, the underlying data, the, the story, and then his performance on top, which was like just incredible, unique, uh, amazing. Yeah, so that sort of, again, it's, it's inspiring to me because you could really see how something dry is, because some of that day he dealt with was really dry on the page, but like he just brought it to life. He totally made it human and um, incredibly entertaining. So, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah definitely inspiring. work is still so, I, st I still show, um, there's a video that he did for the BBC, which Probably every, I'll put a link to it in the chat. Everybody's seen this. Yes, let's talk about the world in eight minutes. And I still show it to students now, and they laugh at it, and they 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 engage with it. They're, they're really in, involved in it. I don't. And that is incredibly powerful for somebody to have made something like that with a real legacy. Really. Yeah, yeah. That 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 video that you mentioned, I also show it to to students, and even include it in talks sometimes. Uh, 
comes actually from a documentary that Rosalind made for the BBC titled The Joy of Stats, which is uh, available online completely. And he talks about, you know, what David is mentioning, right? That numbers, numbers can be interesting. They can reveal something, you know, realities that we don't know about and they, they can enrich our knowledge and our understanding of those realities. And what Rosalind did was to take this very positive approach to both data and also, as, as you, David, were mentioning before, right, uh, a more optimistic view of the world. Not necessarily fully optimistic, but certainly not as negative as, as news media sometimes uh, uh, conveys, right? My next question is actually related to, as long as we mentioned Rosling, right? Rosling had uh, his critics, he had critics, right? People who criticize actually this optimistic approach to, uh, uh, to, to, to the world, right? Which is also the people who criticize Rosling's work also criticize, for example, uh, Max Rose's work uh, at Our World in Data, which is another website that also collects data about, about the world in general. So your, your book, your most recent book aligns with all these projects, right? Which I think try to um, sort of like convey all these data, but critics say, you know, well, but you're not looking deep enough, deeply enough into the data and you are missing, you know, negative trends that may be hiding behind these very positive trends. Have you received any criticism along these lines? Uh, I don't think I have actually, but that may just be because not enough people have seen this uh, project. But I've seen some of the critiques, um, mm -hmm. and I think some of them are fair. Um, I think uh, one of the the strongest ones I've come across is is this. Um, you know, it's the classic sort of Western European Anglo American bias to on development and development in the in terms western terms and the global south and and other uh nations in that i use that that phrase you know lightly but that you know there are um not always the, the agenda is and the objectives and the goals and the cultures that are being um evaluated in western terms don't are not necessarily always needing what is being offered by the West or not gauging their definition of success or even happiness in the same way. So I think there's a legitimate and classical, almost classical objection to be made of a sort of post-colonial Western uh, uh, privileged viewpoint that, that measures things and has methodologies that are aligned with its, its own values and not necessarily those of other parts of the world. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we need many more David McCandlesses all over the world who can create uh, books like these with different approaches and different views, different types of measurement. I think that that would be a super interesting experience. My 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 commentary, my comment was more more related to other types of criticism that I have that I have also seen, um, which connect with the um, the notion of uh, how much detail you show, right, and how how much you aggregate or how much you disaggregate. And I would like I'm going to give you just an example. Uh, of what I mean coming from your book. And then I would like to get your thoughts about how you think about this balance between perhaps 
showing too much detail or showing too little detail? Because this is the a type of question that I receive myself uh, all the time, how I make the decision as to how much you show and how little to show. There, there is a chart in your book, uh, I don't remember the page, page 98 or something like that. I can describe it to you because it's very simple. It's titled, The World Economy Has Ballooned. And it's two bubbles, right? One of them, the first one corresponds a small bubble corresponding to the size of the world's economy in 1968, $2 trillion. And then a big bubble corresponding to 2019, the size of the economy in, in, in 2019 is $88 trillion. But right underneath, there are two figures that got me thinking about this problem, right? About the problem of either aggregating or disaggregating the data and what level of detail we need to actually tell the story about this progress. Because right underneath you say that in 1968, uh, I guess that is the median the median uh, income or the median wealth of a person was $700. And today the median income is $11,000, $11,400 per person. I said, well, yeah, sure, this is progress and it's great, but this is a median, right? What about the underlying distribution, right? Uh, how many people actually are in the median? How many people are way below the median? How many people are way above that median? Does that median correspond? So I got all these questions in my mind at some point, say, you know, it led me to, as a reader of the book, I said, well, but does this answer any question? Or, or do I need to see more in order to understand what, what is actually happening? And also, does a an average reader, a regular reader of this book, need more detail in order to understand what is actually going on? I'm rambling a little bit, but the question is, how do you make decisions as to how much detail or how little detail to show in a chart like this, in order to capture the underlying realities that the data may hide? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think the book is made up of, of uh, many graphics of varying levels of detail. and. The, some are like almost like headline level they're just capsule graphics that just express a certain couple of data points in contrast or comparison don't go into detail and there are a few that add a bit more granularity and then some that dive quite deeply and perhaps too deeply into certain topics um so i would my first response would be well that this graphic is just intended as a kind of headline so it's not um uh, you know, it's not uh, attempting to hide anything. It's just simply displaying the numbers and and uh, visually presenting them. But it's triggering. I mean, it's interesting. It's triggered your curiosity and your questions. And maybe you went looking for more data. And you know, there are data sets for every single graphic in the book. And often the data sets have extra stuff in them. So um, yeah, in a way, it was sort of successful. Uh, not necessarily in, in exploring the detail, but certainly in provoking thought or, um, you know, triggering a, a deeper exploration or investigation. I mean, I'm not saying that's actually my intention. I would probably, if I recall, this image was more like, uh, yeah, like I said, just a series of the, a section where I was just take, taking big numbers and trying to just make them large on the pages in terms of rhythm and, and variety and visual variety. So. Yeah, I think it's a fair critique. And I think there's something about, I've always thought, you know, something about storytelling, storytelling with data necessarily, even conceptualizing data or conceptually framing data in a visualization necess necessitates some occlusion. You mean you cannot, 
show all the data. You have to use devices or editorial decisions to to push back or minimize or, like you say, um, disaggregate or aggregate the data so the reader can make sense of it, so the reader isn't overwhelmed, so it doesn't get a pie in the face of data and numbers and perspectives. So there is a sort of necessary titration of data and information. In this instance, maybe too much, and it's almost like oversimplified and some necessary elements could have been added. I think that's fair. Uh, but that's always the dance, isn't it, when you're making and telling stories or conveying things, what level of data and detail is necessary uh, to preserve the get of the graphic. It's really striking to me that when you're talking, David, about work, to me, you could be talking about edit any editorial piece. It's like you're, you're talking almost as a journalist, the kind of ramping up editorial decisions you make. So bearing that in mind, let's talk a little bit about this idea of beauty. I mean, you know, you mentioned it earlier, your, or your work is always around beautiful or beauty. And what's, what's that mean to you? And how do you kind of apply it when you work day to day? Yeah, so uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, beautiful to me isn't just uh, visually beautiful. Like, uh, I would say, you know, uh, an effective, impactful, successful, beautiful visualization needs uh, three or four effective components. Like, you need really good data, really well structured data, something that's authoritative, well researched, clean. And that's beautiful data. Like data can be beautiful, structurally beautiful. I've said that about data. Like it's beautiful data. And then something that's um, interesting, you know, interesting concept, interesting question, interesting angle. That's also beautiful. That's beautiful to the mind. Interesting is actually the mind's word for beautiful. You know, when we uh, see a captivating visual object, we say it's beautiful. When we perceive a captivating mental object, we say it's interesting. It's like conceptually beautiful. And then something that's been well designed is clearly has a clear goal, is kind of minimal and streamlined, has a sincere and, and well thought through functionality. That results in a beautiful experience. Like that's beautiful. Uh, it beautifies in that sense. And then there's a sort of more societal definition of beauty, which is more about form and structure and appearance and color and so on. So I'd say there are four or five different types of beauty that uh, fall under that umbrella. And I think also. Maybe they unify to make a fifth emergent form, let's say, uh, which is the beauty of clarity. You know, something that's been distilled and uh, sharpened and focused and purified, if you like, of all the unnecessary, so that you have something that's incredibly clear and, and transmissible and understandable and, and maybe even sort of delicious. Having I mean, said I love the, um, I've just got to say, I love the visual index in this book. It's one of my favorite aspects. Yeah, but also your kind of injections of yourself into it, like, as sort of yay Africa or yay Germany and so on. And that, that really kind of resonated with me. But uh, Albert, sorry, you go. Yes, I, I, I was going to ask something related to uh, something that David mentioned before that you said that you are, in your personal project, you're usually driven by your own interests. And you sort of mentioned that you're going to take a sabbatical. So what do you think that you will focus on after the sabbatical? What types of topics have you interested in at the moment that may lead in the future to other beautiful books, beautiful something? What will that something be in the future? Well, I'm trying, my main challenge is trying not to be interested in things. 
Like, taking us back, you just took us back, didn't you? I mean, like, it's really hard. Like, I, it's hard not to make it into a project and, like, you know, just fill up my spare time with uh, ideas and, and other new graphics. Uh, so I probably will keep starting work. Sorry, I, I probably will keep just making work. But I have interest, like, some of my interests are more in, like, psychological domain. I'm into astronomy, cognitive psychology. Um, those sort of areas are intriguing to me, and I think those are areas which are very heavily jargon-laden or poorly explained, so I'd love to just explore those and shine a bit of light in there and, and delve through those topics and do more almost like qualitative visualizations, less quantitative metrics and so on, but more like concept maps and the, the topography of, of domains and, and conceptual spaces and overlapping cross disciplinary matrices and you know all that stuff basically like good stuff well as you as you sail off for your uh, your sabbatical and work that we're going to do um we have a couple of pop quiz questions for you so let's kick off with pie charts or tree maps do i need to say Oh yeah, you do. Everybody you do does. <laughs> you know it's tree maps. It has to be tree maps. It's always tree maps. I love tree maps. I, I absolutely associate you with them. Okay, there are so there's so many tree maps in your work, David. I absolutely love it. <laughs> it's great. Um, uh, I I don't have preferences. I like I like both depending on the circumstances. But I tend to agree with you. Tree maps are great. Uh, the other pop quiz question that we have is more related to the resources. I mean, you're you're largely a, a self-taught person. So, um, and we actually may have a follow-up question to this one. So, what resource? This could be a book, uh, a, a talk, a, a class that you took, or something like that. Do you think that most influenced you in the type of work that you do today? Uh, Oh man, just one? Oh, it could so be more many. than one. <laughs> I mean, book-wise, I remember reading, obviously Tufti's work was very inspiring. I remember reading, did you ever come across Elsewhere Mapping? It was by Janet Abrams, Peter Hall. It was like um, University of Minneapolis book collection of maps that I found incredibly inspiring, not just physical geographical maps, but conceptual maps. And there was another one called You Are Here by Catherine Harmon, which I found very inspiring. And my copy is all just chopped up because I took, I just cut out loads of the charts and made them into a massive physical mood board when I was making my first book. So those books I still go back to when they're not all chopped up and, you know, try and draw inspiration from. But they're not so well known, those ones. Uh, yeah, so I would do that. I would take those. Um, yeah. I'll take one of you. I think I'll take one. I like your books as well, Alberto. Sorry, I don't don't mean to be um, <laughs> too over-friendly, over-obsequious, but yeah, you've done some uh, good numbers. You've done some good, good times there. Well, I, I really appreciate that. But yeah, we all try, right? <laughs> but yeah, the, yeah. the ones that you mentioned, I think, are are wonderful. You are here. And obviously, Tactics books have been influential to, to many people in the field. Um, so what are the follow-up question, and then, then we can wrap it up perhaps. So connected to these, um, if you could only keep 
one of the software tools that you use nowadays uh, in your work, what would that software tool be? This is one. This is going to come across I, I, really pitchy. Well, go ahead. I mean, this, and this is we, this is limited to just one. You can only keep one. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, but I would have to keep my own tool that I have developed. It's called Viz Suite. S W E E T. It creates interactive data visualization. It's an internal tool I've had for years, which I've sort of developed into something a bit more, and it's really actually really sweet basically it's kind of just a really great tool so i would keep that and uh play around with it you can see some examples of it on my site you know uh, interactive visuals so yeah it's just amazing delightful although i would say uh, to anyone who's thinking about doing don't develop any software it's incredibly incredibly <laughs> difficult i um yeah that's been an arduous but as a lovely tool so yeah, that's what I would take. A good place, a good place to end thing. David McCandless, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Alberto. Mm -hmm.